0: Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. Please go to psychologyinseattle.com if you'd like to learn more about the podcast. If you like, you could go to the Support Us page on our website and learn how to support us. You can also email us at contact at contactatsychologyinseattle.com. It's just me today. I thought that I would talk with you about countertransference. What is it? What is countertransference? What, what are the different points of view? What's, what's the history of the construct? What's the history of the construct of countertransference? Okay, so, so there's, there's really no way for me to summarize the history and philosophy of countertransference in this podcast. The, the history of the concept is intertwined with the history of the field, which is intertwined with the culture of the various times and places in, in which it was discussed. So, so the topic is too broad to encapsulate even remotely in this podcast. So, so please keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that if, if another scholar were to give a talk on countertransference, you, you would probably hear some similar things and you would probably hear some very different th- uh, things, some very different opinions than mine therapy and its constructs like countertransference are are very squishy topics that have to be described with our very imprecise language and the experience of countertransference is probably different for everybody to some extent and and that's why i love psychodynamic theory because it's so broad and varied and it's and it's open to these individual philosophies Um, all right so anyway let's let's get on with the topic as with almost everything in my field all roads lead back to Freud and to Joseph Breuer, by the way. Um, in the late 1800s and around 1880, I believe, Joseph Breuer, who was Freud's mentor, Breuer was treating the famous Anna O. The, the story of Anna O is is fascinating, but it's a little too peripheral to this topic, so I won't go into it too much. But, but in a nutshell, Anna O was a patient of Breuer's around 1880, This was the beginning of the time that Breuer and Freud were basically inventing psychoanalysis, or the talking cure. Based on the treatment of Anna O., Breuer and Freud co-wrote the seminal book about her treatment called Studies in Hysteria*. Anna O.'s real name was Bertha Pappenheim, or Pappenheim. She was a Jewish-Austrian woman and the founder of the League of Jewish Women. And according to one source, she was a feminist, but I don't know um, if that's exactly true or not. So Anna O. was treated by Breuer for several neurological symptoms such as paralysis, hallucinations, and passing out. Freud and Breuer diagnosed her with the diagnosis of hysteria. The diagnosis of hysteria has its own long and interesting history which I won't go into right now. Uh, But anyway, so, so, um, so many now believe that Anna O. was misdiagnosed with hysteria and instead suffered from an actual neurological disorder of something like epilepsy or something but i don't necessarily blame them for misdiagnosing her since my expectations are pretty low for clinicians back then uh from what i understand the internet was not as robust back then as it as it is today so you know you can't really blame them so according to some sources, Breuer apparently spent a 1,000 hours working with Anna O. over a 15-month span. So just think about that. a 1,000 hours over just over a year. That's pretty much like, I don't know, like half of your work is spent with one patient. That's a lot of time spent with one patient. So he was quite involved with Anna O., and according to reports from Breuer, he was struggling emotionally with the treatment of Anna O. After struggling for two years, he, he abandoned the treatment of her altogether, uh, presumably because he felt so guilty for responding to the patient's unconscious sexual wishes. At least that's what some people uh, think. I read in one source that she was a quote-unquote seductive patient and that she believed she was pregnant with Breuer's baby, coincidentally at the same time that Breuer's wife was pregnant. Some even claim that Breuer and Anna O. were romantically infatuated with one another. I don't remember all the details, but I seem to remember something along those lines. So apparently Breuer couldn't cope with his feelings towards Anna O. And because he wanted to protect himself from these difficult feelings, Breuer took flight from psychoanalysis altogether. So it could be said that Breuer's feelings about his patient or his countertransference ended his career in psychoanalysis. And by the way, Freud then took the data from this Anna O. Oh case. He twisted the details to fit his ends, and he began developing psychoanalysis itself and the talking cure. All right, so, so later in 1910, Freud coined the term countertransference. He described countertransference as arising from the therapist as a result of the patient's influence on the therapist's unconscious feelings. From that point forward, the history of of the construct of countertransference has been filled with controversy. Nearly all significant writers in the field have touched upon it, and probably all clinical training programs include it in their curriculum in some form or or another. They might not use the word countertransference, but the idea is the same. At Antioch, for instance, where I teach in the master's program, we spend a lot of time training students to become aware of their issues and how their issues and vulnerabilities might play out with their clients in the form of counter-transference. Uh, for instance, in the first quarter, um, all MA students take a class dedicated to investigating their family of origin and exploring their internalized conflicts as a result of their childhood. It, it can be quite painful, this class, but but the students consider it a very necessary course to take. I've been teaching that class for 15 years and it's an extremely difficult class to teach, but it's highly rewarding to witness students working hard to discover their issues and and how it might affect their countertransference or their clients. You know, these students are are so dedicated to helping others that they're willing to put themselves through that in the effort of being the best therapist they can be. And, and, and as another gain regarding that class, um, other than their work with clients, a lot of students say that they benefit in their personal life from that class as well. All right. So, so, so by the way, um, the word countertransference is cumbersome. Uh, I wish we had another word for this idea. Authors have been trying to make other terms popular, but, but none have really stuck. I think it's strange that another construct hasn't emerged um, at this point in 2013. I suspect um, since it's 2013 that... One never will, or at least won't, in any you know foreseeable future. Since since our culture and psychology move so slowly, and there's already been so much written on the topic of quote unquote countertransference, it's hard just to throw away all that literature and, and research. So uh, I'm going to take a guess and and say that the word countertransference is here to stay, at least for a while. Okay, so so what is countertransference specifically? One way of thinking about countertransference is that it is counter to transference. It is the response to transference. So so first we have to know what is transference. A- again, this is another term coined by Freud. Transference is when clients transfer feelings about their parents onto the therapist. Freud and Breuer observed that patients would transfer feelings about their childhood experiences with their parents onto the analyst. And when the analyst had feelings in reaction to this transference, Freud called it counter-transference. Freud considered counter-transference to be the sign that the analyst had not done enough analysis. He thought everyone should go through analysis prior to being an analyst. So basically, he thought that good analysts had few feelings when working with clients. So these feelings that analysts had toward their, toward their clients, toward, toward their patients... It was almost a shameful thing to have feelings emerge for the analyst while working with patients. And I would say that this, that, that this shame still exists today. And I'm ashamed of that shame. Just joking. Also, it seems as though Freud used the term countertransference to blame the analyst's emotional feelings on the patient's transference. So in other words, um, Freud was using this word countertransference to blame the, the patient for this phenomenon. Uh, perhaps a more accurate term would have been analyst transference or analyst displacement but that would have put the responsibility on the analyst rather than the patient um, it, It'd be as if uh, say you're in a fight with your spouse and you call and you call your your personal overreactive anger counter anger you call it you know you're feeling angry and you say I am experiencing counter anger which implies that you were only angry because of the other person's feelings. Um, hmm. That's interesting. I've never really thought about that before. I'm not sure if, that what, if that's uh, what was in Freud's mind, but there's some hints of that anyway. All right. So, so again, as I mentioned previously, the history of countertransference is fraught with controversy. There are many books on my, sh- on my shelf that talk about countertransference, but three books talk about the history of the controversy specifically. The first book um, in front of me here is called Psychoanalysis, the Major Concepts which is written by Morin Fine. I believe it's 95 or something. But it's a big book, and it has several chapters written about several of the major concepts in psychoanalysis. Uh, the other book is Counter-Transference in Couples Therapy by Judith Siegel. And the third book is called Counter-Transference and the Therapist's Inner Experience, written by Gelson Hayes. But but other books on my shelf include essential papers on countertransference edited by Benjamin Wolstein. This has uh, several of the you know essential papers on countertransference written by Freud, Ferenzi, Otto Rank, Clara Thompson, Racker, Searles, Winnicott, Gill, um, among others. Another book here is written by my friend Philip Cushman. Phil Cushman, Doctor. Cushman. Uh, He is a professor at Antioch, a colleague of mine. And the book is called Constructing the Self, Constructing America, A Cultural History of Psychotherapy. Uh, A book that I often find myself reading is called The Therapeutic Process, A Clinical Introduction to Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, written by Thompson and Kotlov. A book that I really like reading um, that's very easy to read is called Between Therapist and Client, The New Relationship, written by Michael Kahn. If you're a therapist, it's of any sort. Um, It's a good book to read. Um, Another book on the history of modern psychoanalytic thought is called Freud and Beyond, and it's written by Mitchell and Margaret Black. So those are just some of the books um, that uh, I use when I try to um, have a full idea of what countertransference is. All right, so the first sub-construct of the construct of countertransference is called classical countertransference. I'm going to be talking about four or five different sub-constructs, and this is the first one. And we're going to call that, or the authors have called that classical countertransference, which is related to classical analysis. So in classical analysis which we might associate mostly with Freud and his early followers. In classical analysis, countertransference reactions include cognitive or affective responses to the patient that emerge as a preoccupation or a resurgence of unresolved conflicts or unconscious defenses. In other words, classical countertransference refers to the thoughts and feelings provoked by the client that manifest in such a way that impairs the therapist's abilities to help the client. For example, let's say a therapist had a critical father while growing up and later unconsciously distances himself from a critical client. Um, This is evidence of an unresolved conflict in the therapist, and the client is triggering a defense in the therapist, which results in the therapy being harmed. So classical theorists consider countertransference to be the unconscious, conflict-based reactions to patients' transference. Also, they believe that countertransference may interfere with the therapist's interpretations, which is what classical psychodynamic therapists value above all. They believe that accurate interpretations will cure the patient. It's one of the major tenets of the theory. And if countertransference gets in the way of that, then it's a bad thing. So in the classical view, countertransference is only destructive and does not benefit therapy. Therefore, it must be eliminated by the therapist, by that therapist entering analysis again, to rid him or her of those feelings. So this classical view of countertransference dominated psychoanalysis for, for many decades. However, as the philosophy evolved, a new view emerged around the 1950s. Some might say it emerged earlier, like the 30s and 40s, um, it's, since so much has been written on it. And it's hard to know exactly what people meant when they were writing. So again, it's a squishy time, but we'll say the 50s for now. Um, this new point of view, what I might call the second subconstruct of the construct of countertransference. So this second uh, subconstruct is called the totalistic viewpoint. Uh, this view proposed that all the therapist's attitudes and feelings toward the patient should be considered countertransference. Um, In this view, the totality of the therapist's reaction is considered useful to the therapeutic process, and that all these feelings carry important information about the client's psyche. Therefore, countertransference should be understood and used to further the therapy, rather than being avoided, um, which is... You know what the classical viewpoint says. So in this way the totalistic perspective depathologized and normalized countertransference. It normalized therapist feelings, making them less threatening to admit and, and available for contemplation. From this point of view, Michael Kahn asserted in his book that I mentioned earlier, that countertransference is commonly considered to encompass all the therapist feelings and attitudes toward the client. And he identified the following four forms of countertransference. Uh, number one according to Michael Kahn. Uh, what he called realistic responses to client behavior. This is the first form of countertransference, according to Kahn. For example, a client is belligerent toward toward a therapist, which causes the therapist to feel frightened. This is a realistic response, right? So that's a form of countertransference, according to Michael Kahn, which is in this totalistic viewpoint. Uh, number two, responses to transference. For example, the client displaces her parent anger, her anger that originally or is you know supposed to be directed toward her parent, onto the therapist and is therefore critical of the therapist and the therapist feels hurt by that criticism. That is a response to transference in the, the second type of counter transference, according to Kahn, again within the totalistic viewpoint. Uh, the third is responses to material that is troubling to the therapist. Um, for example, the therapist is going through a divorce And when he hears about the client's happy marriage, it makes the therapist feel envious. This is a third type of countertransference, according to Kahn. And the fourth is characteristic responses of the therapist or therapist personality traits. For example, a therapist likes to be admired by people uh, in general, not just with his clients. And this plays out with his clients. So this is the fourth type of countertransference, which is basically just personality traits that would harm the therapy. So those are the four forms of countertransference that Kahn identified. Kahn also warned against countertransference becoming destructive in the following ways. He writes that it can blind therapists to an important area of exploration. For example, a therapist might have unresolved issues with his mother and therefore avoids talking about a client's mother. The, the therapist's countertransference is blinding the therapist to the client's material in a way that is harming the therapy. The second way that countertransference becomes destructive, according to Kahn, is it can cause therapists to use their clients for vicarious gratification. For example, a therapist might be uncomfortable with his dependency on others and therefore pushes clients towards independence in a way that isn't necessarily helpful to the client. So this is an example of the therapist using their clients for vicarious gratification based on their own issues. Um, the third way that it, that it might manifest, according to Kahn, is it, it can also lead therapists to, to emit subtle clues that greatly influence the client. For example, a, a therapist might want her client to like her. So when the client criticizes her, the therapist subtly reveals her pain, which influences the client to be less forthcoming about her thoughts. Um, this is the third type in Again, it 's um, the therapist emitting subtle clues that influence the client. The fourth kind uh, out of five is that countertransference can lead therapists to make interventions that are not in the client 's interests. For example, a therapist is is hurt and angry at a client and therefore uses a harsh intervention that harms the client. The therapist believes that the client needs this harsh intervention and, and thinks consciously that it will be helpful. But it's motivated by a countertransference and is ulti- ultimately not helpful. And if the therapist had worked through their countertransference, they would have seen that more clearly. And finally, Khan believes that countertransference can lead a therapist to adopt the rules within the client's transference. For example, a client frequently accuses a therapist of being uncaring. Um, this is a result of transference. And the therapist might start acting as such, might start acting in an uncaring way. Um, this is an example of countertransference. So so as you can see, there are many different kinds of countertransference within this totalistic viewpoint. It seems as though any feeling that comes up for the therapist can be considered countertransference in this totalistic viewpoint. In the book by Thompson and Kotlov that I mentioned earlier, they assert that every therapist has countertransference reactions and that these reactions may be minor or significant, conscious or unconscious acute or chronic, contained or acted upon, apparent to the patient or not apparent to the patient, and so on. Um, The authors identify the following ways in which countertransference may manifest. So according to Thompson and and Kotlov, they believe that countertransference can manifest in dreams about the client by the therapist. Uh, They believe that countertransference can manifest by forgetting an appointment or starting an appointment late or extending a session beyond its, its normal length essentially breaking the frame of therapy. Thompson and Kotlov also identify slips of the tongue as potential manifestations of countertransference. This is a classic Freudian point of view. Um, I can't remember the exact name, but parapraxis, I think it is. You know, it's, it's like if the therapist is angry at the client and calls the client by the wrong name. This this might be a way of trying to hurt the client, and uh, is is not conscious to the therapist, but a manifestation of this countertransferenceal anger. Another manifestation that Thompson and Kotlov identify of countertransference is difficulty remembering material. If a therapist finds him or herself having difficulty remembering the details of a client's life or of the material, then that might be a manifestation of countertransference. It's something to look at. Certainly, therapists forget a lot of details. Uh, it's, it's really difficult to remember every single detail of, of every client. But if it seems to be a problem, then maybe the therapist should, should look at that. And lastly, Thompson and Kotlov say that countertransference can manifest as blind spots or difficulty finding a, an empathic posture. So if there are, you know, significant blind spots in the therapy that the therapist is not seeing, or if the therapist is having difficulty being empathic toward the client, this might be a manifestation of countertransference. And and countertransference is often unconscious, so therapists have to work at making it conscious or um, at being able to see the signs of the unconscious countertransference. And by the way, this often involves consultation or therapy or supervision. Okay, so moving on to the third subconstruct of countertransference, which is called the complementary view. Like the previous totalistic perspective, this view considers therapist reactions as being inevitable. However, the complementary perspective is distinct in its consideration of the intertwined nature of the psyches of the therapist and the client. In this view, countertransference occurs when clients consciously or unconsciously influence therapists to think, feel, and behave in accordance with the client's unresolved conflicts. Uh, Through the defensive action of projective identification... The client has the primarily unconscious fantasy of ridding him or herself of unwanted aspects of the self and depositing these unwanted parts into the therapist, resulting in complementary countertransferential feelings in the therapist. That was a long sentence. Um, So so in other words, the client internalized significant and or ongoing hurtful experiences in the past, and and then the client defends against the inner turmoil of this inner conflictual dyad by projecting it outward onto the therapist. Um, this is called projective identification. The, the client unconsciously socializes the therapist to feel in accordance with the projection. This induces particular thoughts, feelings, and impulses in the therapist. And these thoughts, feelings, and impulses are considered countertransference within the complementary view. And these feelings are valuable in that they tell the therapist important information about the client's defensive style and also what inner conflicts the client has and, and also what the client internalized as a child. So, so this information, when noticed in the therapist, is important data about the, th- about the client. So, so that's the so-called complementary view, in, in that it viewed countertransference feelings to be indicative of the client's projective identification or the recreated past conflict within the therapeutic relationship. All right, so, so the fourth subconstruct of countertransference is called the relational or postmodern view, depending on the author relational or postmodern viewpoint. Um, Recent developments in the theories of constructivism, postmodernism, and intersubjectivity have led to a recognition of the subjective reality of the therapist and its influence on the therapeutic process. As already mentioned, the classical, the totalistic, and the complementary perspectives consider countertransference to derive from client pathology or client material. However, the relational and postmodern perspectives assert that the therapist's interpretations are subjective and should therefore be questioned. The experience of therapy is jointly constructed. Therefore, countertransference can at times derive from the therapist without being provoked by the client's material, and countertransference might emerge from the therapist in response to to rather benign client behavior. In this way, this view does not require that countertransference be in response to a client issue, although it often is. Within this intersubjective relational perspective, there is a two-person field. And the therapist is a full participant in that relationship. Um, this, by the way, is is my position. This is how I see therapy. Maybe I'm just following a fad, which is likely, but, but it's the one that fits nicely within my philosophy of how people work. Since there's no way for a therapist to be objective and robotic, all interpretations made by the therapist should be questioned. What What gives us the right to say that our interpretations are correct and that the clients are not? Um, this this does not mean that we should be paralyzed with uncertainty, but but rather uh, we are to cautiously proceed while acknowledging our humanness and our inherent fallibility. We should always be aware that we ourselves have ongoing unconscious conflicts that sometimes manifest while working with clients, and that this is okay and normal. This is you know this is this is okay for us to say. It's, we shouldn't be ashamed of it. So, in their book, Gelso and Hayes, the book I referred to earlier, um, they offer a fifth and the last sub construct that i 'll be discussing about counter transference. They delineate counter transference from therapist subjectivity, so they provide two constructs: uh, counter transference and therapist subjectivity Countertransference is therapist 's feelings related to a vulnerability within the, within the therapist. And they define therapist subjectivity is therapist feelings that are not related to a therapist inner conflict or vulnerability. So when a therapist has a feeling or a impulse or some kind of provoked thought or some kind of curious thought, they They have to evaluate whether or not that comes from one of their own vulnerabilities or not. And if it comes from a vulnerability, then they would term that as countertransference, whereas if it is just a reaction, Gelso and Hayes would call that therapist subjectivity. For instance, a client is openly hostile with the therapist and the therapist feels feels afraid. This is likely a natural response and therefore not technically countertransference, according to Gelson and Hayes, unless it has to do with some particular vulnerability in the therapist as derived from their earlier relationships, um, which which would probably exaggerate their fear. All right. So, those are the models of countertransference. Those are the subconstructs as I'm calling them of the overall construct of countertransference. So, what do I think about these various different points of view? Well, I'm going to tell you if you're wondering. This is the model that I use when I am thinking about my own work with my clients and when I am instructing students and supervising supervisees. I believe that all of them are useful. Even the classical view is useful. For instance, within the classical view, we have the idea that countertransference can can be destructive to the therapy, and that sometimes, uh, in the classical view, they would say all the time, but but I would say sometimes it's it's worth looking at and trying to wrestle with and get under control, either through therapy or through you know contemplation yourself or supervision or consultation or something. Certainly, I find this to be the case some of the time. I also, to some extent, think along the lines of the totalistic view, which states that all of our feelings are countertransference to some extent. In other words, it, you know, it's, it's just a matter of semantics at this point. It's like... Um, Do I call every feeling I have countertransference or only some? It doesn't really matter what label I put to it, necessarily. I think that all of our feelings and all of our thoughts and all of our impulses are up for contemplation and, and should be questioned. If I'm feeling bored or if I'm feeling tired or if I'm feeling happy or if I'm feeling angry or if I'm feeling overly flattered or something, all these things should be taken into consideration. Does it, does it mean that I have to be constantly contemplating every single thing that is happening for me? Um, no, but, um, but a significant amount of effort should be put into understanding ourselves as therapists. And I think as you do it more and more and you uh, practice more and more, it it becomes more easy to do and you don't have to exert as much effort. And all this is uh, a parallel with my own growth as a a person and my own self-awareness and my own differentiation, as we call it. And in terms of the complementary view, I am often thinking within this point of view. I am often thinking about how my reactions, my impulses, my f- the feelings that emerge in me and the thoughts that emerge in me are potentially a result of the client's projective identification. That things that are emerging in me are there because the client is projecting them into me, so to speak, and causing me to feel that way. Now, do I think that every feeling and every impulse I have is a result of projective identification? Absolutely not. But but certainly some of the time. And I often think within the frame of projective identification. So this one fits well for me as well. And then in terms of the relational and postmodern point of view, this is perhaps my most favorite point of view to, to, to think within. Inner subjectivity is a very interesting topic for me just in general, and um, it, it also very much fits with how I see the therapeutic relationship. And, and I'm often pushing my supervisees and my students to look at this inner subjectivity to evaluate the relationship. Um, what is happening? How does it progress? rather than just thinking of it as a relationship in which the therapist does something to the client i like to think about the relationship as as something that the two people build together or if it's you know a couple therapy or family therapy that that everyone builds this thing called the therapeutic relationship and the therapist brings their self to the table so which model do I like? I like all of them, which is really typical for me. I, I tend to be an integrationist, uh, much to the dismay of other people. Uh, I, I've, I've talked with other people about um, how I like to integrate things. And, or I don't necessarily say I like to integrate things. I just present things in a way that lets them know that I like to integrate things. And I've actually been told that I integrate things too much. And there are certainly people in our field that believe that integration is a cop-out. You're basically saying that everything is good and that can't be possible. Um, to them, they think that you must choose one or two and really stick with it. And I, I think that's silly. Uh, certainly, there are things that I don't agree with. And certainly, there are things that don't fit well with me. But a lot of the theories and a lot of the techniques and a lot of the ways of thinking that uh, a lot of people enjoy, um, I tend to enjoy as well. And, And I tend to see the good in people's ideas and try to incorporate that good into my overall philosophy. So to those of you who are out there who dislike um, when people in- integrate things I say to you um, something insulting which I can't think of right now and also if, if you have a problem with it let me know sometimes integration is confused with lack of sophistication I should admit that when I first graduated from graduate school uh, 16 years ago I said I was eclectic and it was kind of a cop-out for me at that point, 16 years ago, because I didn't know enough to know what I knew or to know what I thought about things. And, and I, it was hard for me to really decide which one appealed to me. Back then, I, I did already have a, an attraction to object relations theory, um, which has you know morphed over time into um, the general psychodynamic theory that, that I ascribe to that incorporates systems thinking as well. But um, certainly uh, there is... A valid criticism of people who call themselves eclectic or integrative, but it's not necessarily true. So there you go. All right. So let's get back to students. What, what model do I provide to the students? I, I suppose I just provide all these models as I'm talking with them. And incidentally, often I find that students are extremely afraid and, and so um, they don't slow down and contemplate their work very often. Um, some of them do and some of them are extremely inter- introspective, but but a lot of them don't because and, and my, I suspect it's because they're, they're afraid that they're going to get caught at doing something wrong or, you know, often when people start. Uh, out at something um, that they're not so good at and it takes a while to, to become good at it they often feel like they're a fraud like you know it's going to be discovered that they're terrible at this career and that they should just pack it up and go home you know therapists go go through a long period of that I remember hearing once that it takes five years for a therapist to get rid of that feeling and uh, I would say that that's anecdotally true it's such a complicated profession that it just takes a really long time to get rid of the that constantly nagging feeling of incompetence and and I really try to help my students and my uh, postgrad supervisees with that as best I can because it's really unnecessary suffering so again. Countertransference can be, can be defined as a species of transference. It's the therapist's inappropriate transference onto the client in response to the client's transference. It, it can also be defined as the therapist's displace feelings onto the client. In other words, the, the, the therapist has unresolved feelings towards someone in his or her life that he or she displaces onto the client as a way of defending him or her against the acknowledgement or expression of that feeling. Wow, that was another long sentence. I've had a lot of long sentences today, Uh, and I apologize for that. But this is a complicated topic, and they require many long sentences. Um, Another definition of countertransference is that it is all feelings, um, it's all the thoughts, it's all the impulses that arise in the therapist while working with a client. Um, You know, this is very broad. And yet another definition is that it is only those thoughts and feelings that are related to the therapist's vulnerability. And yet another definition of countertransference is that it is the feelings provoked by the client's defensive projective identification. So those feelings that are in response to the client recreating their inner dyad within the therapeutic relationship. Some some say that countertransference is to be fixed and banished, while others consider it a welcomed, normal part of therapeutic work. Um, so you tell me, you tell me what your definition of countertransference is. I'm, I'm breaking down the, the fourth wall here and talking to you, the audience. What, what do you think about it? If you have any thoughts at all, please write me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or go to psychologyinseattle.com and go to the contact us page and, and fill out the form and send us an email. Tell me what you think about countertransference, particularly you therapists out there. I'd like to hear what you think. Tell me about your experiences and Let me know if I can uh, share your email on on the air and maybe I'll read it. All right, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Please take care of yourself and have a wonderful day. Uh, See you later, alligator.